Okay, everybody, welcome to the Hard Sell with me, your host, Joel Stevenson. Sales is hard, and in the podcast, what we're trying to do is bring leading experts in the field of sales uh, to help demystify sales a bit and, and help you achieve better sales outcomes. Uh, today, uh, we're welcoming to the show Amanda Rice. Uh, Amanda is currently VP of Sales at Anvil. Uh, prior to that, she was a senior director at sales at Power School Group. And then before that, she spent almost five years at Schoology uh, running both sales um, and, and sales operations. And also uh, worth noting that um, she is a badass golfer. So don't, don't, uh, don't bet her on the golf course. You, you might regret that. So, uh, Amanda, welcome to the Tar Cell. Thanks, Joel. I appreciate the warm introduction. And yeah, that's correct. I would not bet me in golf, especially if I'm playing off the ladies' tees. Um, I, I can destroy pretty much anyone if uh, you let me play off the forward tees. <laughs> yeah, well, just noted if we ever end up on the on the course together, uh, I'm going to bear that in mind. I'll, you'll be off the blacks, I think, uh, while I'm I'm off the I'm I'm off the early tees. Um, well, it, it's great to have you here. Um, um, maybe it just, uh, give us a little bit of background, maybe on what Anvil does or in a little bit more, uh, more about your background and maybe anything that I missed. Yeah, of course. Um, so as Joel mentioned, I recently joined Anvil. It's been uh, about 90 days at this point. Um, so i came to the Anvil organization through, you know, part of my network. So someone that I worked with previously at a finance company, I had never heard of Anvil. They're a smaller startup and they focus in on supply chain, which was not my background previously. And so in the supply chain world, obviously it's a really hot area today, but where we support organizations is from issuing a PO um, to, through following up with those suppliers and managing the, that process of the inbound supply chain to delivering kind of those goods. And so it's interesting because Anvil solves a key issue that no other solution out there in the market solves for today. So I, I was really excited to join that and obviously learn about supply chain given how hot of a topic it is. But as Joel mentioned, like my background is not in supply chain. So previously I've spent 10 years in sales leadership and at SaaS organizations, but that experience has always been with companies that are in different industries and spaces. So prior to Anvil, I was at Schoology, which was then acquired by PowerSchool, which is in the ed education technology space. And then before that, I was in the medical space selling to doctors um, so they could book appointments online at ZocDoc. And then prior to that, I was working at an organization that sold PR and marketing software. So I think the one really interesting thing, if you look back at my leadership experience, is it was at a variety of SaaS software organizations, but all different industries. And then during my time at Schoology, I had the opportunity to go from leading sales teams to even managing things like sales operations, as well as uh, a small time on sales enablement. And so, you know, interesting kind of perspective versus someone that's just been in a sales leadership type of position, whether you're a VP of sales or managing a sales team, it's, it's a little bit different, I think, to see both sides as well as to see it across different industries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe let's start with... Um with the industry side of things. So, um, it's hard. I mean, I think, you know, education has such its own rhythm, um, that it works in. And I think if I remember right, you were selling into secondary schools. Is that right? Is that right? It's so we would like target it, the, the school districts. Um, and so basically any school that would be a part of that district. So whether it's elementary, um, or, you know, middle school, high school, um, could purchase it. So, Obviously, there's also a whole segment around colleges and universities, but our focus was in the K-12 space. 
Right. And so like if you were to think about um, maybe like two polar opposites of the world, I think about, you know, like the school district that I grew up in in suburban Chicago and sort of how they were probably set up versus like, you know, somebody like a Thrasio um, that, that you maybe work with now or, or would be sort of in your strike zone at Anvil. It's like hard to imagine two different types of organizations. So maybe just talk a little bit about like the different, like how you get, how you have to approach those differently from a selling perspective. Yeah. So one thing that was interesting with school districts is, you know, there's a lot of RFP volume, especially for the larger districts that we would work with. Um, today at Anvil, we target smaller companies, um, typically below like 500 million in revenue. And so we don't see like an RFP process as frequently. Obviously, you know, as you move up market into more enterprise organizations, that does shift a bit. So I think a piece of it is kind of who we're targeting today. So luckily, I don't have to deal with really RFPs anymore. Um, so that's a big difference. The other thing that's like fascinating is you know, finding contacts and like who you're going after from a sales rep perspective, let's say you're that SDR doing outreach to go to a school website to find the information. Like that's where our SDRs spent all of their time previously was on school websites because the information was public and it was available um, versus, you know, in the supply chain world and in companies, everyone's on LinkedIn. And so they're spending a lot more time looking through LinkedIn versus going to someone's website to find who the right contact is. And so it's interesting because even like from the upfront part of the sales process, I think things look very different in terms of where the team is spending their time and trying to understand like who they're contacting and targeting. And then looking through like, what does that, you know, sales process look like? So now like once you've set up a meeting from there, um, you know, things are actually pretty similar, surprisingly. So like, you know, we run intro calls, then a demonstration happens, they go through a deeper evaluation, they may want to do a trial, um, all similar things to what we saw in the education space. But the other thing that's drastically different, and for me, it's been a big adjustment is understanding like the vocab. So in the education space, I remember when I started there, I, I, I didn't know much at all. Like there was what we call standards-based grading or mastery grading. And when I went to school, you either got like an A or an F, right? So I remember starting at Schoology and having to learn all of this like new lingo. It was very similar as I stepped into the supply chain space, um, trying to understand like, what does this language mean? And then how, how do I understand what their process looks like and how we support them? And so that's been a key difference is trying to figure out how can I support the sales team and ramp up my knowledge there as quickly as possible um, when I don't necessarily have that area as, as background. Um, so definitely like if you're looking to switch industries, that would be something that's, I would call out, um, as you're trying to understand, like, what does that process look like? Um, and how, and how are you communicating to people? And what do you think is the best place to go, like quickly get smart about, um, a, a new, uh, group of customers? Is it, you know, industry publications, is it talking to the existing sales team or, uh, you know, doing other forms of research or what, like, what, what do you find is, you know, tends to be the best way to get up to speed fast? So talking to the existing sales team and our customer success team has been really helpful for me. I, a key piece that I've been trying to focus in on is like, you know, why do clients buy and what are the core kind of value props that we do offer? And then identifying like industry experts in-house. And I'm not the only person on the team that doesn't come with a supply chain background. So trying to figure out how do we not only train myself, but other members of the team, right, with that knowledge. And then personally, I've started to look for podcasts. So, you know, similar to the one that we're on today, there's a lot of great podcasts on uh, supply chain. So trying to follow those, read up on industry news, 
to try to start to understand some of the lingo. And then obviously, like, don't be afraid to Google something when you're on a call and you're not familiar with it or ask questions. And so, you know, for me, I think having that curiosity factor, not being afraid to ask for information has been really helpful for me to suck down knowledge um, as I've transitioned from one industry to another. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I would say, I, I spent a little bit of time in supply chain myself a long time ago and it's supply chain is also an industry like versus sales where there's a lot of, um, it seems like there's a lot of literature about sales. Like you can go to, you know, Amazon and buy a lot of sales books but there aren't necessarily a lot of sales textbooks isn't isn't taught in schools as much, but increasingly supply chain does seem to be taught in schools. A lot of schools have like industrial distribution programs or things like that. So that for whatever reason, there seems to be more of a, uh, a textbook base of uh, supply chain for whatever reason. Um, so I don't know that, that that's like necessarily a go-to for sales, but it, it just sort of strikes me that like there, there isn't really the textbook for sales um, versus like there are actually some textbooks on the supply chain side. Yeah, no, I've, I've been fortunate, like even supply chain for dummies exists. And so oh. um, st- starting to flip through that. Um, also, one other great resource for me has been like our CEO, you know, he was in supply chain for years. And so he's more than open and willing to share information and help me suck down knowledge. And so again, I think it's identifying like the right resources for you. Um, so you can go and kind of get that knowledge a little bit on your own, but then also work with people within the organization. So yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Um, so m- maybe just switching gears a little bit, let's talk about, you've got this interesting background where, you know, you, 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 I, I think you may be seeing it more now just due to the way that sales is becoming a little bit more digital, a little bit more quantitative. But historically, you didn't see this that much where you had people that were operations people and then you had people that were sales leaders and there, there wasn't as much crossover uh, between the two. You would typically see people go you know, sort of up one path or the other and then there was this sort of symbiotic um, relationship between the two. And I think that does exist still today in, in many orgs. But you've, you've done both jobs. And so, I mean, maybe start by by saying like if you're like i'm curious like what you think the sales leader needs to know about the operations leader and what the operations leader needs to know about the sales leader in order to work most effectively together yeah so it's interesting because i think one thing to keep in mind is like it's a partnership and each of you can learn from each other right and so there are going to be strengths that that sales leader brings to the table that a sales operations person may not necessarily have Um, you know, even looking at myself with my leadership team today, I'm not always necessarily like a rah, rah, like kind of person. Um, but like, I've got, you know, some strong people on the team where those are their strengths. Um, I do try to build team dynamics and stuff, but I'm, I'm not as much of like a rah, rah person. Right. And so knowing what are those people's strengths and, and leveraging that within the team, I think is really important first to kind of build that partnership. And then the other piece that has been helpful for me over the years, I've always been taught from kind of day one, there's an art and science to sales. And so for some people, your strength may be that art, like in front of customers, like the conversations that you're having and how you're kind of driving things towards those next steps or how you objection handle and manage kind of those types of conversations. But then the science behind things and leveraging that data is where you're going to build a repeatable machine. And so instead of getting lucky and having like a a big win here or like one good quarter as a sales leader, it's our job to build consistent, repeatable and stackable, right? Like growth um, over periods of time. And so in order to do that, I think that's where a sales ops type of person can come to the table 
and not only provide some of the data that you need, but also the process to help things become more repeatable. And ideally, someone who's really strong in that role, they can help break things apart and identify that stuff for you. So that may not be like your strength to isolate and figure out like what are the right processes and what are the best data points to look at. Um, but ideally, that other person could help support you there. Right, right. Makes sense. And the other thing that I've sort of seen is um, the there's a little bit of a change now in in who's leading sales organizations and, and particularly as you look at some of the uh, SMB or like higher velocity sales organizations, I think those leaders tend to be um, a lot more quantitative now than they used to be versus like enterprise, you still have a little bit of like where the the person that's running the sales organization is also the person that was the best salesperson because the bigger the deal is, the higher it gets sort of passed up the food chain. And so your 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 sales leader um, is spending a lot of time with customers closing deals versus in an SMB world, your sales leader is spending a lot of time uh, working with you know sales managers, sales ops, like not a lot of time with customers just because like it's uh, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, if you will. So um, I'm curious if, if you've like, wh- where do you, um, wh- where do you guys fall at, at Anvil? Are, are you, you know, is it, is more of an enterprise process or what, what, what is your, what is it your sort of motion look like there? Yeah. So at Anvil today, it's more in the SMB and mid-market space where at Schoology, it was SMB, mid-market and enterprise. Um, and it's interesting because like that was one of the things because I was process oriented and I came from an inside background it was one of the fears that they had putting me into that type of role where the enterprise was still, you know, such a big part of the organization. Um, they were almost concerned that I would implement too much process. Right. Um, and so where in the Anvil world, they're like starving for process um, because it is so much SMB and mid market and, and their smaller organizations still building that. And so that is one of the key strengths that I've been able to bring to the table. Um, but I think the interesting thing is even in an enterprise world, um, there there is some level of process and repeatability that you can create. And so like I definitely agree with you that in the SMB mid-market space, I think you're seeing even more of it. But I've been surprised by how much I've been seeing of it over the years in the enterprise space as well, too. Yeah, there's I think that at some level, it seems like people have now been forced to, to reckon with the fact that um, – you know, whether you want to be in person or not, it's not really possible. Um, and the remote selling or, you know, inside selling world has always been a little bit more quantified um, in digital. And so now we're able to sort of figure out that even if you're running a long sales process, there's there's uh, characteristics we can pick up in the selling process about like how many people are you talking to and like how deep are your conversations with these folks and how long has it been since the last conversation and when's the next meeting like that type of stuff um so it, it seems like uh whereas like you know when i first started in selling it was a lot about the you know the rolexes and the steak dinners uh that i, I don't just don't see as much of that anymore yeah, no, that's completely true. I mean, also, I feel like as the pressure continues to increase around forecasting, so, you know, if you're a publicly traded company too, um, I was fortunate enough to go through the process at PowerSchool where we IPO'd. And so that forecasting motion is also really important. And so the only way to get that is to have a strong partnership with the sales ops team and understand your data and how to run that process. Um, and so I, I've also seen that as well, um, even at that type of level. So depending upon where the company's at, I think stage wise also has an impact as well. Yeah. And so, we're, so maybe, maybe talk a little bit more about that. Um, were, were you guys using, um, 
you know, sort sort of, it, I'm guessing from your statement that you weren't just taking salespeople at their words about what the numbers, you know, were going to be that you had some additional ways of trying to, you know, verify pipeline and what, what was really going to come in in a given quarter. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, there was probably like five to 10 ways to almost consistently like triangulate the data. Um, some of it was, you know, predicting out based upon stages and leveraging like weighted forecasts. Um, there was forecast categories that we used. Um, there was a weekly deal review for 90 minutes on Fridays. And it wasn't just a deal review. It was also like each manager's call was basically validated on that um, meeting as well. Um, and we were also all responsible for submitting a forecast in the system. And so, you know, there was things like what's called a deal blitz, which was basically uh, three times a quarter, every rep without seeing any of the details on the opportunity other than the name of the opportunity. What's your gut feel? Is this a yes or a no? Um, mm-hmm. And so there was just constant ways to continue to like triangulate the data. And we basically had a control book that we leveraged. And so it's interesting because, you know, even though Anvil's a smaller organization and while we're not publicly traded, I'm trying to figure out like what is what are the right pieces of that type of puzzle that you could leverage for a smaller team, right? And to continue to drive that level of accountability and start to understand like, well, what does my sales math look like you from an individual rep perspective and how am I going to perform, right? And so I think it's also interesting of like, how can you take some of those practices from a much larger organization and start to apply them to even a smaller organization to use them as well to start driving that repeatable, consistent success and accountability across the team. Yeah, I'm curious about the the sales blitz concept. Like, how how accurate was that? Did did you find that the reps generally had a good sense of what was going to close or not, or were, did they often err either on the side of over or under confidence? It was typically overconfident in general. Oh, that's shocking. Perspective shocker. Um, <laughs> exactly, and so uh, I I think the interesting thing there though is even though it it was over. I knew that it had to be over what I was calling from a forecast perspective. I'm like, if it was under something was like drastically wrong in my eyes. The other piece that was really helpful was like, so if they called something as being a yes, but then let's say it, it wasn't even an upside in their forecast categories, or maybe there was no price associated with it. Like, how are you calling this as a yes? And you haven't, you haven't even potentially discussed price with them yet. And so it could also be a well, a way to like help to kind of drive pipeline conversations and management um, so there were some interesting ways to leverage the data set as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And so it, so it was, people were pretty consistent at, at least um, in terms of being overconfident. It wasn't like it swung wildly, but the, but it was sort of a, maybe a quick way to sort of say, um, uh, yeah, as you say, it's like if, like they could very, it, it, that would very quickly expose whether there was something in their head that was not reflected in the data systems, like their CRM or whatever you were using. Yep. Yeah. So for instance, also like if they said no on a deal, but they had it in forecast, which is our highest category of like this deal's coming in, they'd basically committed it to the business. But you said no on the deal, but it's like something's wrong, right? And so yeah. again, it's just another way to kind of like validate um, some of the data sets. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and what what about did you guys look at um, or, or in current or, or past jobs? Have you looked at any of the engagement data as is also a signal or no? When you say engagement data, are you talking about rep engagement, like customer engagement on calls? Yeah, as 
So I'm following when you say engagement. Yeah, so customer engagement. So like signals that are coming from the customer about like how many emails are going back and forth or how long they're spending in a meeting or when's the next meeting or that type of stuff. So I have not been able to successfully probably get to that level of granularity. Um, we currently use Chorus today. And so we're starting to look more at some of those data sets and get things set up there as well as like with outreach. Um, but I, I don't feel like I've ever seen us truly run that extremely well yet at an organization I've been a part of. So definitely some work to do there, uh, but it's stuff that I would like to build towards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, I, 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 mean, I suppose in our experience, there's uh, a lot of false positives can be thrown from that data as well, but there tends to be, I think similar to the way you were describing the, the deal blitz notion. Um, there's like some really simple ones, which is, you know, if somebody said, if somebody has a deal in, you know, in, in sort of the commit stage or whatever your top stage is, but there hasn't been an email inbound from the customer in like 10 days, there's probably something wrong exactly. um, in that sense. And I think a lot of times the, like what we've seen is that the, actually the very simple metrics are the ones that end up being pretty predictive versus like these elaborate sort of black box, you know, um, uh, sentiment and other things. Um, I don't, I don't know that we've as an industry, if we've really cracked the code on that yet. So um, I don't think, I don't think you're, I don't think you're, 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 you're far behind. Well, that's good to hear. Um, you know, we're always working to get better. And so um, always trying to figure out what else is happening out in the space too that we may be missing out on and um, have not necessarily thought about. So, Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're starting to run towards the, the end of our time here. I'm going to um, see if anybody in the audience has questions. But while we're, while we're waiting um, for any questions to queue up, what's the best way, if you want to learn more about Anvil or if they want to be in touch, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so um, two ways I'd say. One, we've got an Anvil sales email address. So you're welcome to reach out to sales at anvil.com once you've had a chance to review the website. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so pretty easy to find Amanda Rice and uh, VP of sales at Anvil. So happy to connect there as well. Okay, great. I'm just checking to see. It doesn't look like we've got any questions, so we will uh, let you off the hook here. But, um, oh, actually, we, we do have one. Stand, stand by. Uh, Chris, go ahead. Well, thank you so much. I'm Chris Rosetti in San Francisco. A lot of great information here. Thank you for letting me speak. I have a quick question. Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. Great. I work for a small paper company, uh, Dunder Mifflin. And uh, I'm just kidding. I was a sales rep for many years for a gourmet food distributor on the East Coast. And I noticed that when my sales uh, were doing quite well, when my, my route, if you will, my clients, the, the grocery stores I was calling on, when I was doing real good, it seemed like they cut my route, split it, gave it to other salespeople and caused me to build up again. Uh, that was an aggravation on my part. I guess the thinking on their part was I'll make it because, you know, I know how to sell. Is that the culture today? I did this many years ago. I'm wondering if that's the culture in your company or other companies to where a sales rep is rewarded by having their client base cut, if you will, because they know they'll make it. Just curious. Thank you. Yeah, interesting question. Uh, Amanda, why don't, you, why don't you take that? Yeah, I mean, the way in which I see territories is like, if you've had success in the territory, like, let's try to keep you there as much as possible. Because I agree, like, those relationships that you've built can continue to expand. I think the question is, was the business, like, let's say potentially you started with 2,000 clients, right? And now all of a sudden the business cuts it down to 1,000. Is that because 
you know, you're, you're struggling to kind of potentially reach and maintain everyone. And so maybe that's the case that drives other people potentially into the territory as well. Um, and so I've, I've seen shifts and kind of changes like that. But one thing that I found is like the longer you can keep someone in a territory, the better. But I also have seen, you know, there may be an opportunity where from a business perspective, you're having so much success like in that territory. And so is there a way to leverage you in other markets that are potentially, you know, underperforming where you could help kind of get that market up and running? So I've also seen that approach as well, too. So I think it would probably depend upon the broader context within the organization. And I ideally thinking through like, how do you manage and drive that type of change? I think getting buy-in and helping you as a rep understand the why behind it, I think would be really important in terms of communicating that. And so those would be things that I would think about from a sales leadership perspective on like, why are we making the change and how do we communicate it to Chris and the team to make sure you're set up for success? Well, thank you so much for the insight. I, I, yeah, it seemed I was given the troubled doors, the troubled clients, the troubled accounts and turned them around. And once I got them built up pretty strong and good relationships and good numbers, it was like, okay, uh, we need to move you on to here. It was frustrating, but it's good to hear it might've been a reward actually. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think one one thing that's tough for a company to to balance is um, sort of what the company needs to achieve relative to what the reps need to achieve. So you could think about a world where you've got a company and a single rep. The rep gets all the deal flow. The rep, you know, makes as much money as sort of possible. At some point, you know, you, the rep probably gets too busy. And you've got to cut the territory in half. And when you cut the territory in half, the rep, you know, probably there's a bunch of stuff that the rep couldn't get to, but the rep's able to optimize amongst all the possible opportunities that sort of maximizes their individual outcome. Now they can't do that anymore. Now they've got to dip a little bit deeper into sort of the next tier down um, to, to try to drive some revenue. And so there's always this, this tension between trying to maximize the potential of the company, but also trying to make the uh, individual territory sort of good enough for a rep to be able to make the sort of money that, that they want to make. And there is a, you know, some people think of, of sales in that way is in, in some ways a zero sum game in that if you've got a bunch of reps that are doing super, super well and making tons of money, um, then a lot of times next, the next year, the comp plan changes, right? Cause most companies have an idea of what they, what they think they want to pay or what they can afford to pay. And as people start to blow it out, then there's, there's changes. So, um, uh, it's, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. And one that I think Amanda's exactly right. Like the best thing you can do is communicate the why and help people understand, um, why, you know, why these things are being done. Hopefully there's good long-term alignment via equity or other things that everybody can sort of get on the same page. So thanks for the question. And thank you. Um, Okay, well, I, th I think that's it, um, Amanda. So uh, thanks so much for, for being on the show and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks for the invitation, Joel. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. Have a great day. Bye.